And as you do, grab your Bibles, um, head on over to Hebrews chapter 1. That is where we are going to spend our time this morning. Uh, we, we touched, we dipped our toe in the waters of Hebrews 1 last week. Um, really this morning, we're only probably going to get about ankle deep as we continue to go. Um, we've been thinking about over these past several weeks in the month of December, um, the, the different offices that Jesus occupies. And, and the question that we've been consistently trying to answer, the question I've wanted to consistently keep before you this December is the question, who is Jesus? It's the question that really we need to consistently be asking ourselves in what then or how is our understanding of who Jesus is informed? Are we going to let culture inform us as to who Jesus is? Are we going to let God's word inform us as to who Jesus is? Is Well, certainly we want the latter, and that is part of why we gather here on Sunday mornings, is to let God's Word speak and to reveal to us who His Son is and what His plan is through His Son. Well, there's many voices that want to answer this question, who is Jesus, and there's many competing different ideas about it. So there's Hallmark movies that wants to celebrate the little baby in a manger that lets you, you know, pay off your farm debt or lets you find true love on a Christmas Eve when snow's flithering down to the world below. You know, however those stories go. And, and that's not who the Bible presents Jesus to be. And there's three offices that the Bible clearly presents Jesus Christ to occupy. And the first is that of prophet. And the big idea there is that Jesus speaks. Jesus speaks for God and he speaks as God. And so the prophets of old all foretold of one to come and he came and his name is Jesus. And long ago in many ways our God spoke through our fathers, the prophets, but now he has spoken through his Son. And so Jesus as prophet speaks. Well, last week we looked at how Jesus as the priest intercedes. And he is the high priest that has come. And he has come in the line of the high priest that had served in the tabernacle and temple in the Old Testament. So that the entire Old Testament sacrificial system, that stuff that we don't quite understand, but we know there was animals involved and a whole lot of blood and a tabernacle and a tent and some instruments and all of those things. They all are a foreshadow of Jesus who would come and intercede for us and sacrifice himself. For us. So really in that sense, Jesus is not just the high priest who intercedes, he's also the lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is high priest. It's the second office the scriptures reveal about who Jesus is. The third that we'll look in great detail this morning at is Jesus is king. Jesus reigns. Tonight we'll turn our attention to Jesus as the gift. The gift that was given and the gift who gives the greatest gift. 
And where we began last week, and I showed you this slide, and we read through Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, and we looked at how there were ten different things that the author of Hebrews writes to his audience about answering this question, who is Jesus? This audience that he writes to were Hebrew Christians. They were those who had grown up in a Jewish tradition. They were those who would have known firsthand what the Old Testament had said. They probably would have had large chunks of the Old Testament memorized. They knew the Old Testament system. They were well acquainted with it. But then they heard the gospel and they placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the salvation for their sins. And then persecution came. And it was intense. And these Jewish believers, these Hebrew believers faced a very real dilemma and it was all centered around and wrapped up in the question of who is Jesus because if Jesus is not all of these things then you know what it becomes much easier to turn our back on faith in him and go back to the sacrificial system so that all of those other Jews that are persecuting us will now get off our backs. But if Jesus is who he claimed to be, then the author of Hebrews pleads with them, do not harden your hearts. Do not turn away. Do not, do not forsake the meeting together because of who Jesus is. And so in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 1, the author of Hebrews writes 10 different things about who Jesus Christ is. He is the one God has spoken through in these last days. He's the prophet who speaks. He's the son. He's the heir of all things. He's the creator of the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of God's nature. Jesus currently is upholding the universe by the word of his power. He's king. He made purifications for sin. He's priest. He's sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high. And he is superior to the angels. The writer of Hebrews just packs into Four verses, an immense amount of wealth and material about who Jesus Christ is. Because this question, who is Jesus, matters. And it didn't just matter for them, it certainly matters for us. Jesus is the prophet who speaks. It's in our best interest to draw near and listen. He's the great priest who has intercede, interceded and sacrificed himself. Our salvation is by faith in His name, in His name alone, and He is King who reigns. We're going to look at the rest of Hebrews chapter 1, and we will see the reign of Jesus clearly articulated as the author of Hebrews begins to just put on a display of Old Testament passages that declare and support this claim. That Jesus is king, and he is the one who reigns. 
So before we get into the text, let's pray together, and then we'll hop in and start in verse 5. God in heaven, we come now, and we do so asking that you would speak through your word. That you would give clarity to my words, that what I would say would, would be accurate to what you have already said. God, we believe that you have spoken, and it's in our best interest to draw near and listen. And so, God, we pray that you would speak loudly, that you would help us to listen well, that we just wouldn't understand the content, but that our hearts would be changed. God, we thank you that you have spoken, you have revealed, not only through your prophets in the Old Testament, but now in these last days through your Son and his commissioned apostles. God, we thank you for his intercession and his sacrifice for us once for all. And God, we come now as we think through the ruling and reigning of King Jesus. God, would you expose areas in our hearts where he's not the king and help us expand in our understanding of just how immense his rule and reign really is. And we pray this in his good name. Amen. Well, let's go to verse 5 of Hebrews chapter 1. As I have mentioned already, the author of Hebrews is answering the question, who is Jesus? And the, really, the book of Hebrews is just a, 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 a number of different Old Testament examples and people put on display with then the argument being, Jesus is greater than them. So you guys like Melchizedek? Jesus is greater than Melchizedek. You guys like Moses? Jesus is greater than Moses. You remember that guy Noah and Abraham and Lot and all of them? Jesus is greater than all of them. Well, he begins in chapter 1 talking about Jesus being greater than the angels. And it's actually very interesting. It was at this point in time in history, maybe in a few, you know, 100, 200 years before this point in time in history, that the idea of somebody's guardian angel was first developed in that time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, between Malachi and Matthew, those 400 years of silence when God was no longer speaking through his prophets until the angel announced, lo, you will be with child, was this period of time that one of the ideas about Angels and guardian angels was developed. And so they probably would have had a very, very keen understanding, if not even interest in, the angelic host. And that's where the writer of Hebrews begins. You guys like the angels? Well, let me tell you something. Jesus is greater than the angels. And he begins in verse 5. To which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Well, the answer is none. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. You guys think angels are cool? Well, guess what? The angels serve at the pleasure of the king. Of the angels, he says, 
He makes his angels wings, winds, and his ministers a flame of fire. There's a role for angels. God's doing something with them and in them and through them, but it's limited, and it's not what he's doing in and through the Son. There we get to verse 8. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Notice there as the author begins and continues to quote Old Testament scriptures to support his claim that Jesus is greater than the angels. He says in verse 8, but of the Son, this is God the Father speaking of God the Son, your throne, O God. There's a few things to notice right there as we think through the, the idea that is being put forth that Jesus is king. Well, a king has a throne. And here you have God the Father speaking of God the Son's throne and calling him God. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Now, the idea of scepter was a very kingly idea. It's that two and a half, three foot long pole that a king would have in his hand. Man, that may be a little too long. But it, 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 was, it was illustrative of a king's power, of their ability to rule, of the authority that they had in and of themselves to determine whatever they would wish to determine. Some of you are familiar with the story of Esther from the Old Testament. This word, this exact word, scepter, shows up in a couple different places. In chapter 4, Ezra's talking to Mordecai about the plight of the Jews and, 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 ha- and Haman's uh, desire to kill all of them. And Mordecai's like, you got to go do something. And Esther's like, but, but if the king doesn't extend his scepter to me, I'm going to die. And then it crescendos up to the, for such a time as this, okay, Uncle Mordecai, I will do it. So in in chapter 5, she goes into the king's chambers, and she enters, having not been welcomed, and is waiting for the scepter to be extended. Well, the king extends the scepter to her, and her life was spared, and she then interceded on behalf of the Jewish people there. But that is indicative of what the idea of scepter represents. It represents power. It represents the authoritarian monarchical rule of a king. What he says goes because he's the guy holding the scepter. So not only of the son do we have him saying, or the Lord, or, the, or God the Father saying, the son sits on a throne, but he has the instrument of power and authority that represents the kingship that is befitting to him, and his scepter is one of uprightness. the scepter of his kingdom. The writer of Hebrews is quoting this passage from the Psalms, and he's saying, Jesus rules justly. And we see that expounded. You have loved righteousness, hated wickedness. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever the 
scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. I want to pause and think about that word kingdom with you for a little bit this morning. Because the kingdom, the kingdom of God is a massive, massive biblical idea. It has Old Testament connections. It has New Testament connections. It has future connections. I mean, we're not going to be able to do everything that we need to be able to do in regards to the kingdom this morning. But as we think about Jesus as king, well, that implies he has a kingdom. He has a throne. He has the scepter. Let's think a little bit about his kingdom. The first thing that I want us to consider is that his kingdom was prophesied of. It was foretold of. It's one of the prophecies in regards to Jesus' coming. And in 2 Samuel, we have the promise to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for you an offspring after you who shall come from your body. And I will establish my or his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now there's a near and far aspect to that passage and I think, I think if we went ahead to verse 14 we would even hear and see how there was, there was consequences for the king when he didn't obey and that certainly isn't in reference to Jesus Christ who obeyed perfectly. That was much more in direct reference to Solomon who ended up having his life be a hot mess by the end of it. it, it the near and the far is that the Lord's telling David, look through, through your line. Will men rule and reign? And then one day, there will be one who comes and his throne will be established forever. Well, then look ahead to Luke chapter 1. Here we see now the explanation of this. He will be great. He'll be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever And of his kingdom there will be no end. The wise man, wise men come. Matthew records it for us, chapter 2. And they ask a very simple question. Who is he who has been born king of the Jews? Herod gets all of the Pharisees, all the scribes, all the lawyers together. They go exactly where they should go. To Malachi 5.2, but you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. They knew exactly where to go. They knew exactly what Old Testament passage to look at. They knew then exactly what, what city to go in find the king in, so the wise men go do so, and Herod, well, tell me where you find him, because I want to worship him as well. No, Herod was threatened by the king, wanted to take the king's life, but Jesus as king, who would sit on a throne forever and ever, as Hebrews 1, 8 tells us, was prophesied of. I want to maybe try to give you some ways to understand the kingdom of God. And the first is that there is a general 
a universal way that we see the kingdom unfolded in Scripture. So if we were going to ask the question, what is the kingdom? There's a general, there's a universal way that we see this unpacked for us. It's God's rule and reign through Christ over all creation. God's rule and reign through Christ over all creation. We use words like sovereignty to describe this. We, we say, look, he, he's sovereign over all things. He's sovereign over all nations. He's sovereign over all other kingdoms. He rules and reign. He, he, he's sovereign over weather. He's sovereign over the little dust motes that if you look into the lights, you can see floating around. Hebrews 1.3 tells us that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And we love the song. I loved the song when I was a kid. He's got the whole world in his hands. It's a great song. It's a true song. It's just not true enough. He doesn't have just the world in his hands. He has everything in his hands. He sits sovereign over all things. The breath that you just took, you took because he told you you could take it. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. There's a general, a universal way that God rules and reigns through Christ over everything. And we see this unpacked in a couple different places. And and I'm just going to have to give you a few texts to support these claims. And, And we risk being just proof texting this. But it is so expansive throughout the scriptures that we'd be here until December 31st trying to understand all of it. In Psalm 33, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. This is a fascinating verse in light of where we live today. In light of the United Nations. There wasn't a... United Nations at this point. But here you have in our world in 2017, the nations gathering and casting votes and the Lord's going to frustrate those plans because he's sovereign over all. We have in Colossians very clearly in regards to Jesus Christ and his rule and reign as the sovereign one, the Apostle Paul telling us, He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers and authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is upholding the universe by the word of his power because he's sovereign. So there's a general, there's a universal way that we see the kingdom of God spelled out for us. And it is God's rule and reign through Christ over all creation. But there's also a specific or a spiritual way that we see the kingdom play out. The general, the universal, is God's rule and reign through Christ 
over all creation, over absolutely everything. The specific or the spiritual is God's rule and reign through Christ over all the redeemed. This will culminate one day in the new heavens and the new earth where the king is on his throne and his people are gathered around him. As believers today, we experience this specific, this spiritual kingdom of God's rule and reign through Christ over all the redeemed in in one of two ways. We experience it in part in that it is already here, but it is also not yet here. There's some 162 references in the New Testament to the word kingdom. Of those 162, there's 144 of them that specifically reference a kingdom in a spiritual sense. And so we already live in a kingdom, in the kingdom of God, spiritually. We have a king, King Jesus. We have been forgiven of our sins. Look at what Paul says in Colossians 1, 13 to 14. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The word transferred there is past tense. It's happened. We've been delivered from the domain of darkness, transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. There's an already sense that we experience and and are a part of the kingdom of God. We, We have the spirit of Jesus Christ indwelling us. We are guaranteed a future inheritance that we have already obtained. Paul would tell us in Ephesians 1, verses 12 and 13. Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God was at hand. He commanded men and women everywhere to repent and believe. He spent lots of time sharing parables about the kingdom of God is like, the kingdom of heaven is like. And incidentally, if we would just look at the verbs around the kingdom of of what is used to describe our response, our actions in and around the kingdom of God in this already sense, it's really fascinating that we're never told to establish the kingdom. You and I are never commanded to build the kingdom. We're never told to go and expand the kingdom. Instead, we're told to pray for the kingdom to come. We're to seek first his kingdom. We're told to enter the kingdom. We're told to inherit the kingdom, to receive the kingdom. And if you wanted to look at the main verb that describes the action of the disciples and Christ in regards to the kingdom, what they did, they preached and proclaimed the kingdom was here. It's what Jesus sent them out to do. It's what he came doing. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Well, there's a not yet sense to the kingdom as well. We see this articulated in verses such as Philippians chapter 3, 20 and 21. We'll unpack this, I think, towards the end of January in much greater detail together. 
But here Paul writes to that church and says, our citizenship's in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Do you see both the already and the not yet there? The already is that our citizenship is in heaven. Sure, you live in Philippi, but your citizenship is in heaven. Sure, you live in America, but your citizenship is in heaven. That's the already sense. And the not yet sense is that we, we wait for the Lord Jesus Christ to come and transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. We'll see in just a minute that we wait for the enemies of Christ to be made his footstool. As Paul would write in Romans chapter 8, we wait and groan inwardly as we eagerly wait for our adoption as sons. We wait for the new heavens and the new earth to come and be forever established. And so the kingdom of God, it is general, it is universal. It speaks to God's rule and reign through Christ over all creation, His sovereignty over all things. But it is also specific and spiritual in that it speaks to God's rule and reign through Christ over all the redeemed. And we're going to see those then unfold themselves throughout the rest of Hebrews chapter one. So I want to go back now to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8 with you. We'll look at the second part and then really into verse 9. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Now, the idea of anointing with oil was a, an amazing, amazing idea. And it was one of consecration. It was one of setting apart for a specific office. One author and scholar said this, that it is clear the writer of Hebrews had the three messianic offices in mind, prophet, priest, and king. Induction into these offices all required anointing. And here we are told that the Son has been anointed with the oil of gladness. And as we continue into verses 9 and following, we're going to see the specific spiritual general universal break itself out in some different ways. I believe verses 8 and 9 is about the specific or the spiritual kingdom, God's rule and reign through Christ over all the redeemed. You have Christ's actions while he was here on earth being named. His righteousness, his loving of righteousness, his hating of wickedness, the anointing then that has taken place. But then in verse 10 and into verse 11, you have the general, the universal kingdom now explained. God's rule and reign through Christ over all creation. Let's see what the author has to say as he continues to quote Old Testament passages to support his argument that Jesus is better than everything in every way and that he is king. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work 
of your hands. It's exactly what we were told in Colossians 1, verses 15 to 17. It's exactly what we're told in John chapter 1. It's exactly what we're told in Hebrews 1, 3. It's exactly what we would be told and what's referenced in Hebrews chapter 11. Verse 3, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. The general universal reign of God through Christ over all creation here now is referenced in Jesus' agency in the actions of creation are given. Verse 11, it continues, they will perish. That's in regards to the the earth and the heavens that the Lord Jesus created. But you will remain. They will wear out like a garment. That idea of Jesus remaining supports and and continues what began in verse 8. That his kingdom, his throne is forever and ever. It's an idea that will be unpacked through the book of Hebrews that crescendos come Hebrews 13 verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He will remain. So the general, the universal description of Jesus as king over all things is given to us in chapter, in chapter 1 verses 10 and 11 in regards to the created order that he is said to have made. But now notice when we get to verse 12 the shift that occurs. Because we're still talking about the created order, but we're not just now talking about them passively wearing out. Them passively perishing. There's now specific and deliberate action given and cited that leads to their changing. Like a roll, a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same and your years have no end. See the distinction there between the general universal and then the specific and the spiritual? The general universal is that Jesus sits sovereignly over all created things because he is the creator. But then it changes just ever so slightly when you get to verse 12. That the created things will not just passively wear out. They will be rolled up by the king. They will be changed like a garment by the king, but the king will stay the same. His years have no end, for he is from ancient of days. And then in verse 13, the author returns to remind us of the argument he began establishing in verse 5. That being, Jesus is greater than the angelic host. And he asks another rhetorical question. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? The author of Hebrews dials the lens just that much more focused towards the specific in the spiritual ruling and reigning of Christ and anticipates what is prophesied and promised as our great hope. 
And in doing so, the author quotes Psalm 110. Put Psalm 110 on the screen there for you. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Psalm 110 verse 1 is the most frequently cited and referenced Old Testament passage of Scripture in the New Testament. 22 different times New Testament authors quote and use Psalm 110. And the idea is that Jesus Christ is not only greater than the angels, but he is also greater than all his enemies. To which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool? The answer is none. Jesus Christ is not only greater than the angelic host, he is greater than all his enemies. Paul would tell us in Philippians 2 verses 9 and or 9 through 11, that therefore God has highly exalted him. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And as we think through Jesus as our King, there is a very real sense already here and now that he rules and reigns over all his redeemed. That he is our king. He is reigning now. He's not just reigning over all things. That is true, but he's reigning uniquely over us as his people. He's a king and he's our king. There will be one day when all of his enemies are made his footstool. Revelation 19 records that day for us. You may go there. There are some passages of Scripture that are difficult. There are some passages that leave a bad taste in your mouth, quite frankly. There are passages of Scripture that are hard. This is one of those hard passages. And we're not even going to continue into verse 17 and throughout to the end of chapter 19 because it just gets that much harder. It honestly becomes a little bit more gruesome. But there is coming a day when all of the enemies of God will be silenced. They will be made his footstool. John writes, Then I saw heaven opened. Verse 11, behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war because the scepter of his kingdom is uprightness. And so in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. The armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. 
on his robe and his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Jesus is not only greater than all the angels, he is greater than all his enemies. And there is a day, there is a day coming when he will finally and fully rule over all of them. They will be made his footstool. And, and friends, there's, there's two ways we interact with this truth. The first is to throw our hands up and say yes and amen. The reason Jesus came was to destroy the works of the devil. He, he came that by through death he would, re, he would make powerless the one who had power over death. We say yes and amen to the coming reigning day when Jesus makes all of his enemies vanish. He silences them all. And the implication in that text, this is not a, a tit-for-tat type of battle. I do not believe there will be shots exchanged by each side. He comes and it's done. And we say yes and amen. But at the same time, we also have to allow this truth to, to be a weight. But the reality for those who don't know the Lord is an eternity away from the Lord. And whether they're alive at this day or not, the eternity they spend is away from the Lord. His enemies will be made as footsteps, as footstools. And so while we say yes and amen, I do not believe there's any room for us to, to glibly gloat. But rather with passion and compassion, do exactly what Jesus came doing and exactly what he commanded his apostles and those that were his disciples to do, proclaim the kingdom is at hand. One other text, a couple chapters over, that gives us a glimpse as to what this kingdom will be like. There's a lot in Revelation 21 and 22. Some amazing things are articulated there. But just turn your focus and attention on verses 4 and 5. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's our eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning. Nor crying. Nor pain. Anymore. For the former things. Have passed away. And he. Who was seated. On the throne. Said behold. I am making all things new. That's Jesus. Seated on the throne. Behold, He is making all things
things new. So we wanted to ask this question consistently this month. Who is Jesus? He is the prophet who speaks. And he has spoken. And it's in our best interest to draw near and listen. He's the priest who has interceded for us and sacrificed himself once for all. And now who is sitting at the right hand. Until his enemies become his footstool. And they will become his footstool. Because he is king. The Christmas carol, Joy to the World, is about the ruling and reigning of King Jesus on earth after he has made all things new. It's a song much more, if not completely, about his second advent rather than his first. No more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings known far as the curse is round. That's a reference to Revelation 21 verses 4 and 5. It's a, refer- it's a reference to the all things, there are the former things passing away. That including the consequences from the fall that were given in Genesis 3. That thorns and thistles would inflict the ground and there would be difficulty added to work. That is a former thing that King Jesus will accomplish. And that will pass away. As he makes all things new. So the guys are going to come up and they're going to lead us in this carol. This Christmas carol. And as they do, we, this morning, we we sing and we exalt King Jesus today. As the one who is already ruling and reigning. And we look forward to the day when we will be in His presence, exalting and worshiping Him as the one who will reign forevermore.